In this chapter, what we saw last week was uh, a lot of unbelief, a lot of people who were rejecting Jesus, particularly in his hometown of Nazareth. If you look back at the the very beginning of chapter 6, it tells us there that Jesus went to Nazareth and he preached and people didn't accept him. They didn't accept his message. Uh, They said, who is this? I mean, he says some great things and he heals people and does miraculous uh, deeds, but we know who he is. How, How could this be? And so they rejected Jesus. And it tells us in verse 5 that because of the unbelief of the people of his hometown of Nazareth, it tells us that he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few few sick people and healed them. Now that's really an interesting verse. He he could not uh, do any mighty work there except... Heal a few sick people, like it's no big deal to heal a few sick people. But Mark is making a point to us. I mean, when you can raise a a little girl from from the dead by just saying, you know, wake up, little girl. Yes, it is astounding that Jesus was limited in what he could do. But what what does Mark mean by this verse? Uh, One commentator wrote, It was not that Jesus was powerless apart from men's faith, but that in the absence of faith he could not work miracles in accordance with the purpose of his ministry. Of course, Jesus did not lack the power to do miracles. He He could do anything at any moment. But what was lacking there was the proper context for the purpose in the miracles. Now, Jesus never set a mountain on fire or... Uh, He didn't write words in the sky or do anything spectacular and display his power just for the sake of displaying his power. I mean, he could have, but he he never did. And the reason is, is that his miracles were not just magic tricks to astound people, but they were signs of the kingdom, of his kingdom breaking into the world. And all of his signs, all of these miracles... They show who he is and how his power operates in a person's life. His miracles always healed and restored and delivered people in ways that revealed how we are to find him by faith and have our lives transformed by him. He's not just using his miracles to show us greatness, but to show how his kingdom comes into the world and into our lives. It shows us who he is and how he comes to save us. So if people didn't believe, yes, he could have worked a miracle, but there was no platform. They were not going to accept his mission. And so he did not need to work a miracle there because it it was not just him displaying his power. Well, that brings us to the section before us today because Jesus does display his power here. We have a a great miracle occur in the feeding of the 5,000. And I want to answer this question that we've been talking about from the first part of of chapter 6. How does this particular display of Christ's power show us who He is and how He has come to save us? And we see three things here. We see Jesus revealed to us as the Good Shepherd, 
And secondly, Jesus revealed to us as the greater Moses, or a great prophet, the greatest prophet. And then finally, we see Jesus revealed to us as the master of the feast. And each of these bring out to us an aspect of how Christ works in our lives. Well, beginning with Jesus the Good Shepherd, we see here that the disciples have gone out and they've done all this ministry work and there were great crowds around Jesus and the disciples uh, listening to him and and clamoring for his attention. Uh, They were so busy and working so hard that they did not even have time to eat. And of course, Jesus was God, but he was also human. And he needed a break. And the disciples needed a break. And it's good to have a vacation sometimes, this tells us. And we, the Lord himself was trying to take a vacation. But alas, the people got to his destination, his vacation spot, before he could get there. Before the disciples had time to, to relax. They saw them going out on the boat and heading to this place. And, and the crowds headed him off at the pass. And they were there when Jesus came ashore. And it tells us here in verse 34 a very uh, touching verse, I find. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. Now think about that. You know, you've been working hard and uh, you just want to get away from it all and, and you go to the beach or maybe you go to the mountains since we all live at the beach, and you get there and you find uh, your work has followed you there. How disappointing and how frustrated would we be if that were happening to me. This week I'm going to Nebraska to do some pheasant hunting with some family, and, uh, and I'm looking forward to that and looking forward to a little break, and that'll be nice. And, and uh, So don't call me, please, <laughs> unless it's an emergency. I know I would get upset if, I, if, it was, if my vacation got sacrificed. Jesus is, didn't have that kind of attitude. He had compassion on them. The word compassion is an interesting word here. It, it literally is the word for your inward parts, your heart, your spleen, your liver. You know, to put it very bluntly, it's, it's the word for your guts. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And that's why, or bowels, actually, is another way it's translated in the Old King James Version. Philippians 2, verse 1, the verse maybe you've heard before. If there's any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, that word bowels is the word for compassion, any compassion and mercy. What Paul's saying there is if you've ever experienced Christ's compassion, if, if, you've, if you've ever experienced His mercy, then do likewise. That's the message of Philippians 2. But that word there, bowels or your innards, well, they were seen as the seat of mercy, your inward parts. That's where compassion came from. It's the, it, we, we do the same thing with heart. You know, I might say, after last night's Auburn football game, uh, I might say, Auburn's football team played with absolutely no heart last night. They got beat 63 to 21, by the way. They got just absolutely obliterated. Now, all of those players have a heart, I think. Uh, of course, they do have a physical heart. It's beating in their chest or else they would be dead and they wouldn't be able to play football. Um, we might debate whether they were dead or not. But you know what I mean. Uh, 
when I say they didn't play with any heart, they didn't play with any passion or purpose or motivation. We use the heart, the word heart there, because we know or we believe that that, that's where our motivation comes from. It's the seat of our passion and our motivation and our purpose. And so we use the word heart collectively as the seat of that passion, the center of that purpose. The feelings don't literally come from your heart where the blood's pumping through. More probably comes from your brain and how you think about things. But that's how, that's how the word compassion is used here. Jesus had compassion, and it, and it comes from inside a person, from the center of his being. To say you have no heart, is, that's a real indictment on someone. If you have no heart, it's not a compliment. But when, on the flip side, for Mark to tell us that Jesus had bowels or inward part means that from the very center of his being, he had compassion on people. It, it came up, it, it, was, it was infiltrating everything about him. Compassion and mercy. He sees these people and they're like sheep without a shepherd. They're, they, they're lost and he has compassion on them. Why does he have compassion? Because he sees their situation. That they're sheep. And that brings us to the second thing we see about Jesus. Uh, first, yes, he has compassion. Uh, he is a good shepherd. And, you know, that sheep-shepherd imagery really does make a point for us about how Jesus works. Yes, he is the good shepherd. When I lived in England... There were sheep all over the place. I lived about seven years there, eight years in England. And we lived in a town that was rather large, but it was very close to the countryside. You didn't have to drive far until you were out in these beautiful rolling hills and sheep were dotted all over the place. Well, sheep, you'll come to find out, are really dumb animals. And they really are a a nuisance, especially when they're on the golf course. Uh, there's a golf course in the town where I lived, and this golf course was built on a common land. Now, if you read any old English novels that sometimes talks about the common, and the common would be a piece of land that belonged to the community. So there was no fences or anything, and people would graze sheep on the common or plant corn or whatever uh, crop there on the common. They had the right to do so. Well, this, this golf course was built on a common, so there were sheep grazing there. And the dumb sheep, you know, you couldn't say, shoo, sheep, get out of my way. You know, you just had to tee off and, and hit them. So a lot of times you peg a sheep and, you know, they would startle and, and jump and move about 10 feet and keep on eating. Too dumb to get out of the way. You couldn't drive them out. It tells us something about what, you know, this this imagery that's used throughout Scripture, Luke 15, John 10. Sheep are particularly non-self-sufficient. They have to have a a shepherd. They're utterly dependent on their shepherd for protection and feeding. They could not possibly exist in the wild. They would be eaten. And it's no mistake that Mark repeats several times that they were in a desolate place. You know, they were out in the wild, these sheep, these people who had no shepherd. 
And that's why he has compassion on them. A McMillan, who's a pastor and at one time was a shepherd, he wrote, uh, Shepherd looks at the 23rd Psalm. He said, A sheep is a stupid animal. Sheep proverbially follow one another. They lose their direction continually as cats and dogs do not. So sheep really are in need of a shepherd. It teaches us something about Christ. When sheep are helpless, they cannot save themselves. They must be saved and preserved by another. They contribute nothing to that salvation. And that's why Jesus is moved by the sight of these people. Sheep trying to live self-sufficiently are pitiful. And Jesus saw these pitiful people and he had compassion for them. Jesus is a tender shepherd. He's come to save lost and helpless sheep like you and me, to have compassion on us. And he's full of that compassion from the very center of his being for you and for me. We've heard it sung. We've sung it ourselves. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. What a, that's why everyone loves this psalm. Because it speaks to the very heart of, of who we are and what we need as sheep. We need that good shepherd. Well, when Jesus sees that they are like sheep without a shepherd and he feels compassion for them, how does Jesus respond? Look at verse 34. It says, he began to teach them many things. And this brings us to the second way Mark reveals to us who Jesus is and how he has come to save us. Jesus is the greater Moses. When you look at this passage and how Mark tells the story, and we're going to see this in two weeks' time when we look at the next section, Mark tells the story in a certain way so that it will conjure up for us a remembrance of a past event. And of course, this feeding of the 5,000 in the desert conjures up for us in, in many of the aspects of how the story is told, it conjures up for us a remembrance of how the Lord provided for the people of Israel through Moses when they were wandering in the desert. I'll just point out five or six different ways that Mark is trying to get us to see that point. First of all, he, he says that they were in a desolate place, or it's the Greek word for desert. Now, they weren't actually in the desert because you'll notice that when Jesus sits them down and tells the disciples, let's divide them up into fifties and a hundreds, it says that the men sat down on the green grass. So that it wasn't a sandy desert like in Saudi Arabia or somewhere. It was a desolate place. It was a place where they could get no food uh, very rather or easily. But they were in this desolate place. But Mark's telling us and using that language to conjure up for us that idea that they were wandering and, needed and were in the desert. And then, of course, you have the provision for food. The children of Israel wandered in the desert. They didn't have any food. God provided bread from heaven, manna. The word for manna literally means what is it in Hebrew because they couldn't describe they couldn't. They didn't know what it was. What is it? It was bread from heaven. The provision of food, this bread, you notice that he provides bread and meat just like Moses, God through Moses provided 
bread, this manna, and quail uh, in the desert. Uh, he provides fish. And then the whole idea of him organizing them into groups conjures up uh, the imagery of the, the encampment of Israel when they gathered in their tribes and clans, and that's how they were organized in Israel. So all of that in the telling of the story is so, for us to see that Jesus is like Moses, and the people actually see that. The Deuteronomy 18 passage that we read uh, where Moses said, look, God's going to raise up for you uh, a person like me, a prophet like me. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And here we have Jesus in this desolate place providing bread, providing meat for these people, lost without a shepherd, and he teaches them. And just like Moses, the mouthpiece of God. John's account of this feeding of the 5,000, it concludes with a little more detail that Mark doesn't give us. It says in John chapter 6, When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And they're talking about that Deuteronomy 18 passage. And they're, just, they're exactly right. Jesus is greater than Moses. He was that prophet that came into the world. And it says in John 6:15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. They rightly identified Jesus as the prophet greater than Moses, but they wanted to make him a political king, and Jesus didn't come to do that. He didn't come to, to set up a, a physical earthly kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom. And so this passage reveals something to us about Jesus, that he is the greater Moses, and it also shows us how, uh, the nature of why he came. Not to be a, a great military leader or a king, uh, earthly king, but to set up a spiritual kingdom, a kingdom in our hearts that comes to us through listening to his word. As we remember from Mark chapter 4, the parable of the sower, how do we... How are we changed and transformed? How do we grow? Through hearing the Word and it taking root and producing fruit in our lives. Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus himself reiterates the, this. He says, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Just like a prophet. A prophet is the mouth, mouthpiece of God. John 12, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me is, has himself given me a commandment what to say, and what to speak. John 8, Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. The question is, are we truly his disciples? Do we hear his word? Do we recognize the greater Moses? And do we listen to him? Jesus is not just the prophet, but he himself is the word, John tells us. And Yes, his words are very important, and you know we must listen to his word. But more than that, he is the word. God the Father is speaking, and Jesus is revealing to us God's heart. What is God like? John 1, 18 tells us that Jesus, the only begotten of the Father, 
reveals to us the Father. Nobody has seen God at any time, but Jesus reveals Him to us. And what does He reveal to us about God? John 1.17, The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So everything about Jesus is grace and truth. He speaks the truth. He is gracious to His people. Do we listen to, to Jesus? Have we responded to God speaking His Son into the world? Do we listen to Him? Have we embraced Him? He is the one greater than Moses. Then finally, the third thing that we see is Jesus is the master of the feast. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but, but Lord, the Lord provides in abundance. Whereas Moses... You, you know, you got the manna, you couldn't keep it till the next day or it would spoil. You had, to con- you had to gather what you needed for that day, you ate it, and then if you kept any the next day, it turned into worms and was nasty. But here we see Jesus doing a miracle with, with loaves and fishes, and there's an abundance left over. It's all gathered up and saved and can be used again. But it's a picture of the overflowing grace of, of Christ abundant provision for us. And it's not just our physical needs that we're talking about, our spiritual need. We're sheep without a shepherd. Jesus has provided more than we need. He he has laid down his life and provided a salvation that's beyond our dreams. See, when we see that this sign is more than just a display of his power, that it's a sign of the kingdom you know, Jesus, we, we saw how Jesus' miracles are not simply naked displays and proofs of his power. Rather, they're pictures of how God's kingdom power works redemptively. When Jesus heals the sick or raises the dead and feeds the hungry, he shows that he is no more satisfied with the current condition of this world than we are. It's a broken world we live in. And it frustrates us often. Jesus feels our pain. Jesus' power is not just to save us out of the world, but to heal the world. That's what he's doing. So Jesus' miracles look back to the world God created originally, to the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve had everything at their fingertips. No weeds to contend with. The world, was, the world had not been placed under a curse. And, and life was eternal. But sin ended all that. Feeding miracles look back to when no one was hungry. Healing miracles look back to when no one was blind or broken or sick or died. Nature miracles like the calming of the storm look back to when there was total harmony between humanity and nature. But the miracles don't just look back to the Garden of Eden. They point us forward. They point us ahead to the new heavens and new earth. This means... You know, when, when Jesus comes, he's ushering in his kingdom. It's going to come in his fullness one day, and there's going to be a new heavens and new earth. We don't think of miracles as just the suspension of the natural order, but as the restoration of the natural order. He's putting things back to the way they're supposed to be. So when he heals someone, he's actually putting them back to the way they're supposed to be. It's not just doing something odd and out of the ordinary. Of course, it's odd and out of the ordinary because we live in a broken, messed up world. But one day, it's not going to be that way. Everything's going to be perfect. Everything's going to be 
eternal. And you know, we're going to live forever. No more sickness, no more death, no more sin. No more disharmony between nature and humanity. That's Jesus giving us a little glimpse here of what's to come. To be at the eternal feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb, in eternity and have everything that we need provided. Now finally, just to conclude real quick, what is missing here that Mark doesn't tell us? He, he does not give us any record of astonishment from the crowds. And when there's a miracle done, people are like, wow, look what, look what happened. A little girl is raised from the dead or a blind man walks. But here, the crowds, do they even know a miracle has taken place? Mark doesn't tell us that. Or do they just accept this bounty without reflecting on the gracious gift that's offered to them? Well, that's the question for us today. Have we reflected on the gracious gift that God has given us? Do we appreciate the miracle of who Jesus is and what He has done for us? Do we appreciate His compassion for us? Do we appreciate His Word to us? And do we appreciate His provision for us? Let's pray together.